We are going to be hearing from what is called the Passion Narrative of Mark's Gospel from now until Easter Sunday. Well, Palm Sunday, really. Easter will be not the Passion Narrative. The primary focus of these chapters in Mark is the suffering of Jesus Christ that accomplishes our salvation. And as you can see in the order of service, I have titled the sermon series, O Christ the Lamb of God. It's a title based on a, histor- a historic part of the Christian liturgy, the Agnus Dei, Lamb of God in Latin, which we've heard a number of times already this morning. It's in your order of service. You can also check your boxes back there or on the information table over there, pick up one of these posters that has the passages for each week that we'll be reading, and then obviously the title of the sermon series. Um, thank you to Amy for your work on that again, and Kendra as well. Um, so I encourage you to take those home and keep those handy, and read along and prepare for the, the sermons each Sunday in advance, and also there's encouragement to read the whole Gospel of Mark, and at least Isaiah 53, if you want to read more of Isaiah, that would be fine too. Maybe if you don't want to read the whole book, chapters 40 to the end or something. At any rate, uh, the words Lamb of God don't actually show up in Mark's gospel. They, in fact, only show up in John's gospel. And in John's gospel, they're said by John the Baptist. But as we saw last Sunday, as we looked at Jesus' celebration of the Passover and his institution of the Lord's Supper, Mark certainly wants us to see Jesus as the final fulfillment of God's Lamb who carries away the sin of his people. So we continue our journey through Mark's account of the suffering of God's holy Lamb, Jesus Christ, our Lord, by reading this morning. Mark 14, 26 through 52. I encourage you to take out your Bible now and turn there. If you are using a pew Bible, it's on six, page 63 of the New Testament sections. And, and now let's pray as we prepare in heart and mind to hear God's Word. Send your Spirit among us, O God, as we meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Prepare our minds to hear your Word Move our hearts to accept what we hear. Purify our will to obey in joy and faith. We pray all of this through Christ our Savior. Amen. Mark 14, beginning at verse 26. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all become deserters. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though all become deserters, I will not. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said vehemently, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. 
He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of them deserted him and fled. A certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The tension must have hung heavy in the air as Jesus and his disciples sang the final hymns, really the final psalms of the Passover feast. And we have to wonder, with 12 looking at one another as they sang, trying to size one another up, I mean, which one's it going to be? Who's going to betray Jesus? And were they still trying to piece together the meaning of Jesus, even more startling words, the Passover bread is his body? The cup is his blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many? What does that even mean? With everything on the disciples' minds, you have to wonder if the singing was maybe a little less robust than it might have normally been. And if the hymn that Mark mentions here is the normal concluding psalm of the Passover, Psalm 118, we can probably safely guess that the words had rather poignant meaning for Jesus knowing what he was about to face. They would have sung, they surrounded me like bees, they went out like fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Who give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. What must Jesus have felt as he sang, knowing that he was about to experience the discipline of the Lord, and that he was going to be given over to death? The tension must have hung heavy in the air 
as Jesus and his disciples sang the final hymns of the Passover feast. And if any of the tension relaxed, as they began their journey from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, Jesus ratcheted right back up with another bomb. You will all become deserters. Or as other translations have it, you will all fall away. Or as the King James has it, all ye shall be offended. The Greek word there is scandalizo, scandalized, offended. They had been eyeing each other, looking for the one who would betray Jesus. But now Jesus says a different word, all. You will all fall away. Now their eyes must turn also to themselves. Me? And Jesus, who has been interpreting Scripture in relation to himself all night, now applies Zechariah 13.7 to himself and to his followers. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Now, the, the precise meaning of Zechariah 13.7 and the surrounding passages in Zechariah had been notoriously difficult for the rabbis to peg down. But Jesus, in one swift motion, pegs it down. Jesus must have been focused on the first half of the verse just as much as the second. One of the things that was certain about that verse from Zechariah was that the eye who will strike down the shepherd, the shepherd who stands next to the eye, was none other than Yahweh. So Jesus knew also that he was the good shepherd. He knows who the eye is. He knows who the good shepherd is. While there must have been some comfort knowing that what was about to happen was the will of Yahweh, the weight of what was about to happen, to be struck down by the Lord, must have also been becoming already nearly unbearable for Jesus. But the disciples must have only had ears for the latter part of the verse, and the sheep will be scattered. And they must have missed entirely the significance and actually the, the triumph of Jesus' next words. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. This is not the first time that Jesus has predicted his resurrection, always on the heel of a prediction of his betrayal, arrest, and death as well. But it's been a while since I've said it, so I'm going to say it again. Part of the explanation... For the, for the disciples' inability to hear and comprehend Jesus' predictions of his resurrection, and then also their kind of disbelief when they actually saw it in the resurrection accounts, part of the explanation is that they had no expectations, and so they had no categories in their brains for one single person to be resurrected in the middle of history. Now, like in contrast, that's the only thing we actually know. We know only of the resurrection of the Son of Man being resurrected in the middle of history and that he is the first fruits of the resurrection that is to come at the end. But that's not actually what the disciples understood. The disciples, to a man, would have believed that all of God's elect would be resurrected at the end of this age, not one guy in the middle of history. 
So Jesus' words here, words of great hope that point not only to Jesus' resurrection, but also to the gathering. Like, so you get this, right? After I'm raised, I will go before you to Galilee. It speaks of the, the gathering and the redemption of the sheep back in Galilee where this whole thing started. But Jesus' words go completely unnoticed and unmarked by his disciples. And maybe that's part of the explanation. Maybe part of the explanation is they were just so worked up over Jesus' prediction that they would be offended and fall away and worked up by the need to clear their names, that they just missed it. And so it is that Peter, true to form, speaks up first, and he's quick to distance himself from his fellow sheep, even though all fall away. Look at these other guys. They'll fall away, but not I. I I'm not going to do that. So even before the shepherd is struck. The sheep are already trying to, to distance themselves and scatter from one another. And as quick as Peter is to declare his unique loyalty to Jesus, I, these guys maybe, but look at me, I'm uniquely loyal. Jesus is just as quick to point out what will be Peter's unique falling away. And truly, I tell you, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, in other words, imminently, this isn't something that's going to happen five years down the road. It's going to happen now. You will deny me three times. Not once, not twice, three times. As Mark scholar William Lane put it, the reference to the threefold denial indicates the thoroughness with which Peter will refuse to acknowledge Jesus and the inescapability of the charge that he was offended because of his master. And Peter, who is, remember back chapter 8, he was so quick to rebuke his Lord for suggesting that his Lord would be handed over, beaten, and killed, is now just as bit, or maybe overly eager to say the opposite. Oh, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. We're all going to die now. As Shakespeare would have put it, the man doth protest too much, methinks. And all too soon, Peter will just as loudly, just as vehemently, and with just as powerful of oaths, protest that he never knew the man. Not that Peter is alone. The word all shows up again. And all of them said the same. But Jesus knows that they are all horrible judges of their own character and their own courage, or lack thereof. He knows that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered. As verse 50 says, all of them deserted and fled, including a certain young man who, tradition has it, is none other than John Mark, the author of this gospel, who writes himself into the gospel at this moment, but does so in a way so typical of Mark, never never cuts the disciples or himself any slack and shows himself fling in all the shame of his cowardness and nakedness. In other words, though, Jesus knows, as William Lane put it, that he will face this hour of crisis utterly alone. And Jesus, the true Adam, was the only is the only true Adam, the only true man. 
He would pay the price and take upon himself the punishment for the sin of all mankind, down to the very last man who would abandon him. He alone would do it, and he would do it alone. And not a single one of us should imagine, oh, even though all fall away, I would not have fallen away. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And in our sin and by our sin, we have all fled and abandoned our Lord, been scandalized, offended by Him, fallen away. And so we should all consider ourselves included in the all here. But, praise be to God, by God's grace, we are all also included in the wonderful good news of the gathering and the reconciliation of the sheep to their good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. That is implicit in that statement, but I, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. The tension must have hung heavy in the air as Jesus and his disciples walked to the place called Gethsemane. When they get to Gethsemane, Jesus leaves eight of his disciples at one spot, and then he commands them to sit there while he prays. And I say eight because presumably Judas slipped off at some point after the supper, after the final hymn perhaps, while the other 11 disciples and Jesus were walking to the Mount of Olives and then on to Gethsemane. So he leaves eight behind, and Jesus then takes with him further into the garden the three disciples who were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the three disciples who also tend to be the most impetuous and the most inappropriately self-confident. So we just saw Peter in action, and you know what Peter is like when he's in action. But James and John, a while back, infamously asked to sit at Jesus' right and left hand when he came into his kingdom. A bit of inappropriate self-confidence, a bit of arrogance. But at that point... With words that ring loudly here in this passage again, Jesus said, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drank or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And in their arrogant and in their ignorant self-confidence, they said to him, we are able. Now, Jesus acknowledges that that will eventually be the case, but that time is, is not right now. Most scholars agree that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him not as a favor, but actually because he knows their arrogance and their self-assurance puts them at the most risk for temptation in this moment. He takes them with them because they're the weakest and they need the most help. And such an assessment of their character at this moment proves to be accurate. The prediction of a threefold denial by Peter is immediately mirrored by this threefold failure of the three in Gethsemane as they fall asleep, precisely at the hour when they need to stay awake and be fervently praying. And in this hour, when Jesus needs so desperately to be ministered to by others, he still pours himself out in ministry to these three men, urging them on time and again to wakeful prayer and vigilance. Jesus repeatedly commands the three to keep 
awake and pray, not for him, but for themselves, that they won't come to the time of trial. Notice that in verse 37, Jesus calls Peter by his birth name instead of the nickname that he had given him. Simon is not acting like Peter. He's not acting like the rock at this moment, except that he's sleeping like a rock. Jesus' concern, though, even as his own soul is deeply grieved even to death, is for the safety and the well-being of his flock, the sheep under his care. But that, friends, is exactly who our Lord and Savior is, isn't it? That, in every moment, defines who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do, to lay down his life and to pour himself out for, quite frankly, a rather selfish lot who don't even remotely deserve it. Our Lord himself, after telling the three, I am deeply grieved even unto death, went a little farther, Mark tells us, and he threw himself on the ground and prayed. The normal posture for prayer in the, for a Jewish person in the first century was actually standing, standing with arms outstretched to heaven. Normal posture for prayer. As R. Allen Cole said, prostration in prayer was indicative of extreme spiritual anguish. Jesus' anguish, however, is not merely the result of the fear of betrayal, beatings, and death that is coming his way, not even the fear of a horrific death that is crucifixion. As John Calvin put it, death in itself would not have so grievously tormented the mind of the Son of God if he had not felt that he had to deal with the judgment of God. What led him to pray to be delivered from death was the dread of a greater evil. When he saw the wrath of God exhibited to him as he stood at the tribunal of God charged with the sins of the whole world, he unavoidably shrunk with horror from the deep abyss of death. So this hour that Jesus faces is not just the threat of a particularly horrible physical death, but rather is the threat of the very wrath of God being poured out upon him. Jesus knows that he must drink the cup of which the psalmist wrote. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. That's Psalm 11.6 and then Psalm 75.8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Jesus knew that he would be, as Isaiah prophesied, numbered with the transgressors, counted with the wicked to bear the penalty of their sin. William Lane, I've quoted him a number of times, he explains what's going on here very well, and I'm going to actually quote him at length. He writes, the unusually strong language That's the unusually strong language that Mark is using to describe Jesus' experience in Gethsemane. Indicates that Mark understood Gethsemane to be the critical moment in Jesus' life when the full meaning of his submission to the Father confronted him with its immediacy. In the wilderness, he had determined to bear the burden of the judgment of God upon the people. He had spoken repeatedly and in detail to the disciples about his passion. 
When he set his face toward Jerusalem, he did so with resolve that amazed his disciples and made them afraid. The reference to his baptism in his cup, and again, that's that story with James and John requesting to be seated at his right and left hand that we talked about, implies an awareness of the cost of submission to the will of God, and doubtless Jesus had seen other men crucified. His demeanor throughout the approach to the moment of arrest and trial was one of resolute calm. The dreadful sorrow and anxiety then, out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death, it is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father at the prospect of the alienation from God, which is entailed in the judgment upon sin which Jesus assumes. And Jesus came, and he's talking about this moment in Gethsemane of prayer. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him. And he staggered. Jesus, the one who is one with the Father, existing eternally in perfect communion with the Father in the Spirit, finds himself in Gethsemane on the brink of bearing the punishment for our sin. And that punishment is separation from the Father. He finds himself, though in reality innocent of all charges, not just facing an excruciating death on a cross, but he finds himself facing hell itself. And he's going to experience that for us, for we who are in reality guilty of all charges. And so, deeply distressed, profoundly troubled, his soul deeply grieved even to death. He prays with the most intimate of language. This moment where he remains entirely in communion and union with the Father, facing the dissolution of that union, he prays with the most intimate of, lang intimate of language. Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Now, contrary, just want to clear this up, contrary to popular misconceptions, the term Abba is not the equivalent of daddy in English. It, it does mark an, an intimacy that is only appropriate to the close relationship of a child or with a father or a disciple with a teacher, but it doesn't just mean daddy. But what happens next in the Garden of Gethsemane is the opposite of what happened in another garden many, many, many years before, as another man walked in communion with his Creator God. Because there, in the Garden of Eden, with nothing but the blessing and bliss of life in communion with the Father lying before him, the first Adam, the first man, and all mankind in him said to the Lord his Creator, yet not what you want but what I want. And slavery to sin and its consequences, including death, entered the world. The first Adam, and we, all of us in him, said, no, I'll have it my way. 
And every time we indulge a sinful thought or engage a sinful action, we are saying the same thing all over again to the Lord our Creator, yet not what you want, but what I want. My will be done. But here, in this other garden, the garden in Gethsemane, the second Adam, the true man, with nothing but the shame of the cross and the weight of God's wrath lying before him, said to his father, yet not what I want, but what you want. And so slavery to sin and its consequences, death included, is overthrown. Jesus, knowing full well that submission to his father meant that he was about to endure the punishment of hell on behalf of mankind, refused to, at this moment of crisis, dissolve the perfect unity of his and the father's will. We should note, of course, that there's a lesson in this. At at this moment, as well as other moments throughout Jesus' life, Jesus prostrates himself before the Father in vigilant and wakeful prayer. It is in prayerful communion with the Father that the unity of his and the Father's will is sustained. And so Jesus models for the three disciples and for us precisely what he asks of them and what he asks of us. So is it any wonder that those who slept, and I, and I should point out, actually part of the, the Passover tradition was once the Passover was actually kind of officially completed, families would stay up for hours talking about the redemptive work of God in the Exodus. Every Passover their whole lives, the disciples had stayed up late into the night. And so this time, when that redemptive work is actually being brought to its fulfillment in history, they decide they need to fall asleep. But is it any wonder that those who slept later fled? Their wills and desires no longer in unity with the Father's. And is it any wonder that he who threw himself before the Father in prayer was sustained in this moment of crisis to its end. His will and desire united perfectly with the Father's. And our Lord is sustained from this moment to the end. Once he passes through the agony of Gethsemane, his resolute, even calm disposition carries him through the rest of his passion. From the moment of his betrayal and arrest, he's in charge, till the very end when he gave a loud cry and breathed his last, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, carrying upon himself the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. Praise and thanks be to God.